The Guardian. The Guardian has partnered with audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a one-month, no-commitment trial of the Audible service. Audible has over 50,000 audiobook titles available to download. Go to guardian.co.uk slash audible for further details. Welcome to another Media Talk. Coming up this week... Rebecca Brooks and Andy Coulson, they're, they're the scum of journalism for trying to drop me and all my colleagues in it. I don't think this is an industry that is interested in or capable of self-regulation. I accept responsibility for the fact no one held a gun to my head and made me write that and, and the next day another hurtful story too. And I feel very, very ashamed. The good, the bad and the ugly side of newspaper journalism are on display after another dramatic week at the Leveson Inquiry. We bring you the latest. Also in the podcast... Gary Speed may do one of those people that may do proud to be Welsh. We analyse the media's reaction to the sad death of Gary Speed. Plus... Facebook gets ready to float, and... And now, this week, the British electrical giant Philips announced it's branching out into a whole new area, the world of sex toys. Housewives' favourite Alan Titchmarsh heads over to Classic FM, and there's a new Johnny Vaughan at Capital. But who is he? I'm John Plunkett, and this is Media Talk from The Guardian. Here with me in the pod this week, I have Steve Ackerman, Managing Director of Radio and Digital Uber Indie Something Else, as well as writer, broadcaster, and Sony-winning podcaster Ollie Mann. It's good to see you both. Hello. Uh, Now let's get the big story of the week out of the way first thing, if you will. And uh, one word answers. Steve, should Jeremy Clarkson be taken out and sacked? (laughs) No. And Ollie? No. Well, there you go. We look forward to uh, more Top Gear in the new year. (laughs) Um, In other news, we're off to the Royal Courts of Justice again. Yes, we're leading once more with the Leveson Inquiry. Well, this week, The Guardian's Nick Davis was one of several high-profile current and former journalists giving evidence. Davis was joined by ex-News of the World hack Paul McMullen, as well as Richard Pepiat, latterly of the Daily Star, and Alistair Campbell, who worked at the Mirror before becoming Tony Blair's chief spin doctor, of course. In their own ways, each of them delivered dazzlingly dramatic testimony. Steve and Ollie, we'll get your thoughts in a minute. But first, here's The Guardian's head of media and tech, Dan Saber, who had a ringside seat for all the action. Paul McMullen was the most entertaining by miles, but actually, I think, revealing too. Entertaining because he sort of came up with these crazy remarks, sort of, privacy is for pedos, he said at one point. He said, you know, uh, what a great job, you know, working on the news of the world was because the only job in which you could sort of, you know, be involved in car chases and be paid for it. And so that, you know, the whole thing was, the whole testimony for McMullen was a great adventure. It was clearly calculated to shock. It was calculated to, uh, for show. But it also, I think, revealed a kind of morality of sorts which is I think if you sort of take that kind of Sunday tabloid anything goes we'll turn them over we think it's justified uh, uh, sort of thinking to its ultimate limit you get to you know you get to Paul McMullen and Paul McMullen was the guy who said you know circulation's in the public interest to the news of the world sells millions of copies everything I did must have been right and 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 there are some sort of free marketers in journalism who kind of they wouldn't want to express like that but that's kind of the end point of that argument. And McMullen was very clear about how much he believes Colson and Rebecca Brooks knew about what was going on and just how widespread hacking was. He said that uh, when Andy Colson came over as deputy editor in 2000 and used the world to, towards the end of McMullen's time, actually, uh, that he imported the practice wholesale. Uh, that's the practice of phone hacking. And he also sort of said in broad terms that 
you know, the knowledge of phone hacking would have been widespread uh, across the newspaper. That said, McMullen did leave in 2001, and obviously, you know, Glenn Mulcair, uh, the private investigator, no choice for hacking, was sort of active for the news world from maybe 2002, certainly 2003, 4, uh, up to his arrest in 2006. So he doesn't have knowledge of perhaps that sort of critical time a bit later on, which is um, the back end of Rebecca Brooks's editorship uh, and Andy Colson's editorship. And Alistair Campbell was also on the witness stand. He was predictably critical of the press, but he also pointed the finger at the mirror, suggesting that they may have hacked uh, into Carol Kaplan's phone, I think. He didn't suggest it. I think he said it could perhaps be possible that they'd got a story about... Sherry Blair's pregnancy that way. He didn't have any evidence, and it's the sort of thing that the mirror, and he made some sort of broad remarks about the mail in a different way. Uh, it's something both the mirror and the mail would absolutely deny. And all he was really saying was, I, there are some things I don't understand how they got in the public domain, and looking back on it now, I think that hacking might have been possible. But it was an interesting observation, uh, or an aside, but it really didn't amount to proof of anything. Is that one of the issues and the difficulties of Leveson and the way that it's, it's going ahead and that lots of claims are being made and often those claims aren't particularly substantiated? I'm not just thinking about Mr Campbell there, but you know some of the celebrity uh, witnesses we had last week. Well, it's a good point because I think that the point of the inquiry is to try and get some good information, but it's not subjecting the information to a rigorous cross-examination. So, you know, somebody can come on the stand, make some allegations, and they won't be tested too much. As Leveson says himself, he's not trying to get to the truth of any particular point per se or any particular row or controversy or allegation of a, or misdeed or allegation of a misdeed. What, what he's trying to do is get a broad picture of how the press operates and how to sort of move forward in terms of regulation. But he, he does sort of leave the inquiry in that slightly unsatisfying position of, uh, you know, a broad brush allegation is made and then actually sort of on the sidelines, particularly the male and to a lesser extent the mirror have been a bit snippy about sort of shooting down anything that they think is unfair. Now, they're quite within their rights to sort of say, state, the, you know, state their position, but, but they're forced to do so sort of at the end of the day or in the margins. And it's, it's a little bit unwieldy, but probably practically the only way that we could go. And one person not present this week was uh, political blogger Paul Staines, a.k.a. Guido Fawkes. What happened there? Well, that's rather interesting sort of case study in all this context, in a way. Uh, Guido got a leaked copy of Alistair Campbell's witness statement, about which I'd best not say too much, because I'll be in trouble with the judge, I think. Put it up on his site over the weekend. Lord Justice Leveson said he was sort of, in effect, sort of committing contempt to the inquiry by front-running this evidence. Campbell wasn't due on till the Wednesday, uh, so he issued an order for it to be taken down, which took a little while, but Guido, a.k.a. Paul Staines, uh, did take it down. I mean, it raised some interesting points about jurisdiction. I mean, if Guido had really sort of decided not to comply, then we would have had a big row about sort of how much governance the courts have of the internet and back to the glory days of the Ryan Giggs affair. That would have been quite an interesting moment. You know, and as it is, I think what Leveson has shown is his... He's not very keen about sort of people sort of foreshadowing people's evidence until they've sort of turned up in person and given it. I guess that's fair enough. It's supposed to be a public inquiry is run like a court. And just finally, what's next for the inquiry? Who, who do we hear from next? Sort of going into a quiet phase. We're hearing from a few journalists, from people who used to work at the Information Commission, other people who sort of look at privacy, looked at privacy breaches, this famous Operation Motorman investigation, which found hundreds of examples of breaches of privacy being requested from this private investigator, Steve Whittemore, on behalf of every newspaper in Fleet Street. So we'll hear more from that. Uh, I think we're going to have a sort of a week of News International witnesses coming up uh, soon. And probably, I think, a sort of a slower period. Uh, we don't have much visibility on witnesses this side of Christmas until, you know, things get start to get exciting again when we get sort of editors and 
and maybe owners in, in, in the witness box in the new year. So we're kind of, we've built up the sort of the most exciting part of the case for the prosecution. I think now we'll have a discursive period talking about people's experiences, the media and so on, and then we'll sort of, you know, move on to the case for defence in due course. Dan Saber there. Ollie and Steve, as, as non-press people, what have you made of the last few weeks of Leveson? Steve? Well, I have to say, if you want to follow what's going on in terms of Leveson in, in lovely bite-sized chunks... Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm not blowing smoke up his, up his ass, but Dan's tweets have been absolutely brilliant. So uh, just something to follow there if you really want to keep on track with Levinson. It's kind of ready, it's ready made for Twitter, isn't it? You know, it's yeah, cool. yeah, absolutely brilliant. I thought this week has been particularly fascinating because you know last week we had the sheen of the of the celebrities, and this week we're actually getting into the nuts and bolts of the culture of the newsroom. Uh, hearing obviously from 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 some of the journalists and the people involved in actually trying to uh, put some of these stories together. It hasn't necessarily told us anything, I don't think, when you already, that these are high-pressured, you could call them bullying environments, but I, I think that's actually being slight, slightly unfair. Everybody knows what a newsroom is like in terms of the pressure to get the story. Obviously, the judgment is how far that line is pushed in terms of the means justifying the ends, but it has been absolutely fascinating hearing from the people on the inside, I think. Ollie, you get the impression that um, Mullen really loves playing the role of the kind of dishevelled, uh, unscrupulous hack, sort of a, I don't know, I think Philip Seymour Hoffman might play him in the, in the big film version. Uh, I'm thinking more Steve Buscemi, but I see what uh, you mean. Yes, yes, I see where um, you're coming from. Yeah, there was this interesting bit of footage on Sky News, actually, when they ran the story about him turning up to the Levinson Inquiry, where they showed him arriving. I don't know if you saw that, but he was arriving eating a Tesco fruit salad whilst carrying a plastic <laughs> bag and looking very sort of dishevelled. And I thought that was an interesting choice uh, because it wasn't really necessary for the item, but it does seem that everyone really wants to present him as uh, some sort of lunatic ranting. Oh, uh, but Ollie, the, the, the key thing about his entrance was he turned up at the courts and he asked an ITV reporter which way is the entrance. And he said, if you go that way, that's where the, ph- the photographers aren't. You know, that's the sort of back, back entrance and over there is where the photographers are. And he intentionally went in the main entrance or wherever the, uh, where he'd get maximum attention. And I wonder well, if... Well, he does if, believe privacy is for pedos, so, you know, yeah, maybe standing well, by his own... <laughs> but, uh, but I wonder if the thing he's angling for here with all these statements he keeps making and he's done for many, many months now are, are you know, is his book deal. The thing is, I mean, I've seen a lot of journos on Twitter that worked at the News of the World just before it got closed down, angry that McMullen is representing their trade because he's so unrepresentative in their view of what the News of the World was like at the end. It's one aspect of tabloid culture, not not 100%. Exactly. But the thing is, it is the aspect of tabloid culture that that inquiry's been set up to deal with. And the fact that he represents the scum of tabloid journalism from 10 years ago is why he was called. So I don't see a problem with that. I mean, it's important to have it all out in the open, isn't it? If, it, if he does get a book deal, it'll be interesting to see which newspaper serialises it. I imagine it probably <laughs> no, won't be a uh, Do you think, what about public interest? I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating to the media world, but do you think uh, the Leveson Inquiry's got weeks and months to run? How do you think it's playing out among the wider general public? Well, I think you can see, even from the calls The Guardian itself has made, where it's pretty much been relegated much deeper into the into the newspaper, that for the moment it has less of an interest. I mean, certainly this week when it's more journalists talking, you know, last week clearly when you've got the celebrity angle, everybody's interested in that. Having said that, uh, everything that Levinson predicted is coming true. You know, why are the Mail or the Sun going to cover this? Of course they're not. They're going to try and minimise coverage in as, in as much a way as they can. So I think it's very difficult, actually, to really get a handle on, on how much, uh, you know, wider public interest there is. And actually, is that particularly important? I think it's important because I think all of this was allowed to go on because the public were basically indifferent to it so long as they got their smart on a Sunday. And if enough 
people come up that tip the scale in the balance of the public being disgusted about this kind of behaviour, then the tabloids would react to that anyway, whether there's new regulation or not, because people might stop buying it. And so I think for every story that does cut through, like, say, Anne Diamond and the story of being photographed at a funeral for a son, as many of those that cut through, the better in terms of what the inquiry might actually attempt to do. OK, well, on now to some other topics, and we'll start with the tragic death of Gary Speed. The former Premier League star and manager of the Welsh national side was found dead at his home over the weekend. Just hours before, the 42-year-old had appeared on the BBC's Football Focus programme, and his death came as a huge shock to colleagues in the media, players and fans alike. Um, Steve, something else, your company, produces the 606 Football phone on 5 Live. How did you approach it just hours after the news of his death was announced? Well, this was without doubt an incredibly sensitive moment. I mean, for those who don't know, uh, on a Sunday, Robbie Savage is, is is one of the presenters of 606, along with Darren Fletcher. And Robbie was a very close personal friend of Gary's. That clearly threw up a lot of issues. I mean, leave, leave aside the fact this was incredibly shocking anyway. You know, whether you're a football fan or not, the, you know, the fact that, a, that someone who seems to have the world at their feet obviously didn't take that view and, and, and sadly took their own life. The fact you've got a presenter who's who has a close personal attachment really does throw up a, a very sensitive element. And you know, I would urge anyone once you've finished listening to this podcast, uh, you've got about twenty four hours, I think, on the iPlayer to hear the edition of six oh six because it's incredibly powerful radio. Gary Speed may do one of those people that may do proud to be Welsh, and everyone just burst into applause in remembrance, really, and it was spontaneous. Everyone just come out and did it for him, really. Sean, what a great way to finish the program tonight. Gary Speed was a man that made you proud to be Welsh. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I've got to say, it's one of the worst days I've had for a long, long time. Hearing the news, um, shocked, stunned. Um, I've lost a friend. I've lost a, a teammate. There, um, his boys have lost a fantastic dad. Um, you know, Roger's lost a great son. I'm going to miss him. Peter says, as a Newcastle fan, Gary Speed was a true childhood hero of mine. I remember playing football at school and trying to re reproduce his trademark late run into the box from corners. Kate in Cumbria says, Gary always had the common touch, a perfect gentleman. And finally, Jack says, well done tonight to Robbie. I know this must be really hard for you. He said, you've done nothing. You've done well. I think we've done him proud. I hope so. Thanks for all your calls on 6.06 tonight. It's been a really difficult day. Very emotional stuff at the end. Very powerful. I mean, you know, especially in the macho world of football, you've you've not only got Robbie Savage crying, but obviously Darren as well. And I've got to tell you, the production team in the in the gallery. I think what made that very powerful radio was that instead of the 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 bolshy bravado you sometimes get with phone-ins, you saw a very sensitive side there. I think to male culture, um, there was huge respect coming in from callers. You know, there was no shortage of callers calling in with generous, warm stories. And I think. Uh, as a piece of radio that, that could act as a tribute to a famous person, uh, it was incredibly powerful, whilst also giving that personal insight that Robbie brought. I mean, we, we didn't hear it on that clip, but earlier in the show, he talks about how he found out in the morning about uh, Gary's death, and, and, and he still called his mobile because he couldn't believe it. And as he's talking about this, he again starts breaking down. It's, it, it's incredibly powerful radio. Was there any discussion of maybe you know cancelling the show or not having Robbie on it, or perhaps you perhaps he really wanted to do it? Yeah, absolutely. But um, but but as you said, he he absolutely wanted to do it. He'd appeared earlier in the day on Five Live, on um, Sport on Five. There was no question in his mind that that he he wanted to do this. 
Ollie, I know you're not a, the world's biggest sports fan, but what did you make of the coverage? No, I'm not. And in fact, uh, that's probably why my career is stalling at Five Life. Um, <laughs> uh, I'd never heard of Gary Speed, actually, until last weekend. That's how little I follow football. But I agree that the lack of machismo around it is really interesting. I did see Stan Collymore, who I follow on Twitter, uh, tweeting that he was frightened and confused. And I thought, crikey, that's the kind of statement that actually in the days before Twitter a footballer wouldn't have made through an agent. Um, but you actually saw an emotional reaction through all of these guys. Um, so I found that very interesting. I mean, in terms of the reporting online and stuff like that, I mean, as with Amy Winehouse's death, I did find the Mail's coverage mentioning by the third paragraph the price of his Chester townhouse just absolutely baffling. I don't understand why they always bring real estate values into these things. But if you look at the comments on those news articles and the discussion that's propping up from real people who were obviously shocked by it, um, you do see that, I think, really because of the internet, there's a place for all that to be cried out, I guess. But the rumours are there too, uh, you know, speculation as to why he might have killed himself. And in fact, I was looking on Google News today and I just typed in G. I had only got as far as G. And the autoprompt came up with, I guess, the number one reason the internet thinks he may have killed himself. And that really changes the way the media is presenting these kind of issues as well, because it's not just about what happens on 606 anymore, it's, it's what's on Google. Well, I think also you've got to look at, obviously, when the story broke, and so, you know, you're in that classic cycle where actually the newspapers are playing catch-up because it was 24 hours, literally, before they could actually report anything on it. I also think it was actually one of those stories where it seemed to naturally gravitate towards radio, and I think in particular Five Live and, and potentially, though I didn't really hear much of their coverage, Talk Sport. Talk um, Sport, they did quite a moving tribute at the Monday afternoon at the end of the um, Richard Keys and Andy Yeah, I, I mean, those are obviously our sports-dedicated outlets. You know, we don't have national sports newspapers, um, so those are our sports-dedicated outlets, and, and I think particularly because it broke on a Sunday, it did mean it was, it was right at the top of the agenda. Although I must, on behalf of my girlfriend, who's a graphic designer for the Racing Post, correct you that we do have a national sports newspaper. <laughs> what? You're not saying horse racing is sport, well, are you? Oh, yeah, just, let's not get into that. I'm just representing. <laughs> well, you can read plenty more on the life and legacy of Gary Speed over at guardian.co.uk slash football. Let's move on. Now, Ollie, you're even more down with the kids than Mr. Ackerman here. Hard um, to believe, isn't it? It is hard to believe, uh, looking at what Steve's wearing. <laughs> What's this about Facebook being valued at $100 billion? Is that all? Well, earlier in the year, in private market transactions, Facebook's value actually spiked as high as $141 billion. Um, so whoever put their money in then must either be regretting it or uh, think that they know something about what's around the corner for Facebook. Then you are, it's pretty nice Facebook profile. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but yes, the story is, come April, Facebook is finally saying that it's going to do its IPO. Goldman Sachs is still selling on the basis of $50 billion, but yeah, they're going for $100 billion, and that's because they're asking for an extra $10 billion and they've got $90 billion already. I mean, the numbers seem completely ridiculous when... How can it possibly be worth so much? Well, it's, yeah. it's not. I mean, that is 62 times its revenue from last year. So it's all based on what it might be worth in the future when it becomes even more popular than it is now. I mean, as an advertising platform, it is kind of amazing to think if you're launching the new Lady Gaga and you're Sony Music or whoever and you've got enough money, you could potentially reach one billion people with an ad that pops up before they log into their profile. That is worth something. But when it comes to the real way that Facebook can make money through micropayments on ads because they've taken people's personal information and data, what they're into, the bands that they like, the religion that they are, the sexuality that they are and all that stuff, that's all being clamped down on. And Facebook has only this week said that they're going to have more audits into their privacy settings. So you wonder, actually, I mean, yes, that would be very powerful if you could monetize it, but actually whether when they become a public company, Facebook will be allowed to monetize it. Martin Sorrell is, uh, is, is one of the sceptics who thinks that it's going to be tough to monetize social network sites like, like Facebook. Uh, what, what do you make of it, Stu? I think the interesting thing around all of this is, 
how effective you find things like banner ads? Because in effect, Facebook is about click-throughs and banner ads. And have you ever clicked one? No. I mean, apart from one that's maybe put up by something else? Well, I haven't. No, I mean, I mean funnily enough, we, 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 we saw a piece of research uh, in relation to some work we'd done earlier in the year. What that told us was that anyone who clicks on a banner ad then stays on that ad for less than nine seconds. So as a piece of advertising, not, I don't think, particularly effective, though maybe it's about mass numbers and then just getting that very small amount who click through and do react based on what they're seeing. Personally, you can only go on what you're seeing, seeing around you. I don't find Facebook as a strong tool in terms of advertising. No, and also, I mean, obviously, you know, for our podcast, for example, we have a fan page on Facebook. If we want to do a viral, we can make it for free, upload it to YouTube for free and post it to our Facebook fan page for free. We don't need to take out an ad. I mean, that viral's there amongst the people that are following us. And that's an interesting point, Ollie, because I think certainly what we are seeing is brands increasingly investing uh, more and more into content. You know, look at what Fosters are doing in terms of comedy or, you know, Red Bull. Look at what Red Bull do. There were, there were many, many examples. And we're seeing more and more brands go into this space. And I think actually that's where the real opportunity is online. Oh, uh, I hope brands, so. If brands any brands are listening content. and they want to give me some money, please be in touch. <laughs> <laughs> well, we read this week that The Guardian's uh, Facebook app has been downloaded four million times now uh, since September. And I think Facebook, is, it's a hugely important uh, driver now for, for newspaper traffic. And it's becoming a search engine all by itself. Or as, uh, as Mark Zuckerberg said, it's all about reconfiguring the web through social navigation well I, I you know i think that's especially true for the for, for the for the younger demographic you know make no mistake the sort of um well i know that 12 year olds aren't allowed on facebook officially but you know 12 to sort of 20 that sort of age range for them facebook is the internet now it is the search tool it is the way to speak to people uh, you know email is this fuddy-duddy thing that's that's the older people use as a business tool but and i, I know this isn't the tech weekly podcast so i'm going to wrap this up quickly because i know you want to move on to other subjects no, we could do a land grab. i could talk about facebook all day but there's also the fact that Google Plus is gaining some kind of traction now. And so they will have a rival by April, which still won't be anything like as big as Facebook. But it might be a year after that. And I think that's kind of what's behind this flotation. I'm not sure, bearing in mind what a perfectionist Zuckerberg is, that Facebook is actually in the state he'd like it to be to go to market with. Because actually, they keep adding out all these new features and rolling them out. And it's a bit of a mess. If you designed it now from the beginning, as Google Plus have done, half of it you just get rid of immediately. If only it was as simple as to use as Twitter. And perhaps the least surprising story I've written up this week was headlined, Digital Radio Switchover Will Not Be Complete Until 2019. Well, that was the, uh, that was the views of the uh, Consumer Digital Expert Group. Steve, what's the delay this time? And is it a delay or have the consumer experts got it wrong? Oh, do we really have to talk about this again? I, I, I mean, you know, well, from what I understand, they basically said it just isn't, um, it isn't happening as fast as they expected and predicted. Well, there's no great surprise there. I can feel your overwhelming enthusiasm for well, this topic. Well, you know, I just feel like I've been talking about the same thing for about 10, mm. 10 years. Well, which that's, the, that's the problem, isn't it? Because they're still paying as well. They're still paying for digital and analog tra- transmission for years and years. So something's got to give, surely. Well, look, I mean, digital radio is not going to go away. It has to happen. You've just got to look at the, the natural state of affairs of how many radios people have in their houses, how many people have got cars. You know, we've just had terrible economic figures out this week. That doesn't tell me lots of new cars are going to be bought. And if lots of new cars aren't bought, that means you're not getting cars with digital radios in them. Yeah. And, so, and so, you know, it, we are a long way away from, from mass penetration happening only through DAB sets. However, in the interim, obviously, what is starting to happen more and more is we are finding other ways of listening to radio, including stations that are DAB-only stations. And, and, and I think everyone now accepts we're going to end up with a, a situation where we've got a number of different platforms at play and digital radio as in DAB, will be one of those. But, but you know, 
let's just move on and concentrate on more important things. Ollie, we've I been mean, talking about in-car DAB, but if this carries on much longer, we'll be talking about in-flying car DAB. Yeah, I mean, if you're looking as far forward as 2019, then you might as well look at what they're doing in Korea now, which is kind of in-car Wi-Fi and 3G. Uh, and people not just listening to digital radio, but accessing all digital entertainment whilst they're on the move everywhere. That will happen probably roughly at the same time as they finally get the DAB signal sorted out. So it is a slightly irrelevant conversation, but I think because it's so well established now, it's going to be part of the mix. I like my DAB set at home, but it's not what I think of even as digital. Digital means digital distribution. It doesn't mean DAB. And I think everyone's kind of got over that. I also think as well at the radio festival this year, uh, they offered everyone who was in the room a discount at Halfords to go and get a DAB radio fitted to their car. And I thought, well, in a way, that's good. I mean, the way they were pitching it was saying, everyone here, get a DAB radio, and then you'll know what it's like to have DAB. And once you've had it, you'll never go back. And I thought, I see what you're doing. You're trying to get the industry championing DAB. But actually, if you get this kind of apartheid system where only people in the industry have DAB and everyone else is still listening to FM, (laughs) only people in the industry will think that people are listening in their cars to DAB. And the fact is, people aren't. They like FM. They like medium wave still. People still listen to Five Live and Talk Sport and Absolute on medium wave. And I just think we have to accept there's going to be a mixed ecology of stuff. Well, this, this topic will run and run, but Steve, next time you're back, we'll leave it off the agenda. That and the paywall, please. <laughs> that and the paywall. Okay, well, finally this week, we're still with the wireless. With due respect to the big man we're about to hear, it's the analogue variety. Well, tonight, I've put together a rare old mix of favourites. And I begin with the genre that I've long championed, that of Edwardian musical comedy. Lionel Monkton was a great exponent of the art, and one of his overtures from 1909 sums up all the Ruritarian escapism that typifies the genre. The Arcadians. Yes, it's the sound of Mr Greenfingers himself, Alan Titchmarsh. The titch was dropped by Radio 2 in the summer, after four years at the station, and Global Radio have pounced, well, sort of, signing him up to present a new Saturday morning show on Classic FM. Steve, do you think that's a smart move by Global? Yeah, I think it's a really smart move, and I'm, I'm a big fan of commercial stations signing up big, hitting names. You know, commercial radio needs more of that. It's very good when commercial radio does it for its profile and its sense of ambition. But funnily enough, it's also good for the BBC. You know, the BBC needs competitors to keep it on its toes, and a few years back, commercial radio didn't have the resources to bring in some of these names, and I think we are starting to see this happen now on, you know, talk radio with um, uh, Keys and Grey did, 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 a, did a similar thing. Yeah, they got Russell Brand, I guess people like Stan Collymore. You know, absolute, fantastic, with Frank Skinner and Dave Gorman, it can only be a good thing. So, well done, Global. Brilliant. Oh, I've always had you down as a big uh, Alan Titchmarsh fan. Uh, actually, I've been on his TV show a you few have? times, and he, I do it's respect like him. A name drop. I do respect him as a broadcaster. I think he's slightly um, underappreciated for what he is able to do, looking so relaxed all the time, which is the big trick of doing anything on telly. He's a close personal showbiz friend. Of yours. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, uh, but he is a jolly nice man. I actually think what he'd have been perfect for, if they do do this syndicated BBC local radio afternoon show, uh, Titchmarsh for that would have been ideal. Uh, because let's be honest, the audience that he appeals to is kind of 60 to 90. And I think the fact that he's was dumped by Radio 2, I know that really, almost certainly, this was about money, not about making an editorial choice. But even so, is a bit worrying for Radio 2, because Radio 2 is supposed to be aiming at those people as well, isn't it? It's not supposed to just be chasing people who are in their 40s and 50s. And his show, Melodies for You, I found unlistenable. And therefore, I conclude that if you were 70, you'd have thought it was magic. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I think in a way, it's a bit of a shame that that audience isn't being served by Radio 2 anymore, and they're going to have to go to Classic FM instead. Classic's always been very good, though, at taking presenters who aren't necessarily classical presenters but just are intelligent respected broadcasters and reinventing them in that classical space you know John Suchet being another yeah uh, Katie Deere yeah you know you know their lineups mentally David Meller 
Alex well, James. Well, I mean, well, they, they do think in a slightly out-of-the-box way. David Miller's the only one, I think you'd say, oh, please, can someone not employ him? He's got a lovely radio <laughs> voice. I'd always put my shirt on David Miller. <laughs> uh, well, more talent news at Global. Thank you. More talent news at Global with the announcement of Johnny Vaughan's replacement on London's Capital Radio Breakfast Show. Who is he, we asked. Dave Berry, they said. And at the risk of repeating ourselves, we said, who is he? Well, uh, Steve, Mr Radio, tell us all about Dave Berry and what, what you make of the appointment. Well, Dave Berry's come out of television in in the sense of he was on, uh, I think, you know, Channel 4 and uh, T4. and um, MTV, uh, I think, as well. MTV. Built, built up his profile there. He has done breakfast before. He's been on XFM. And uh, I don't think that was deemed uh, an overriding success. He's obviously been doing weekends on Capital more recently. He wasn't the big name. Some people were saying, maybe fancifully, but uh, you know, Chris, uh, Chris Moyle, Scott Mills, or someone like Dermot O'Leary, a bit more unlikely. Well, I don't, I don't think Chris Moyle's... He's not I, a know, marquee name, is he? I don't think Chris Moyle's or Scott Mills would have been right either, because Capital is driving uh, younger and younger. It's, it's going much more after Kiss now. Then it is obviously, you know, it, it needs to move itself away from heart because obviously Global own heart as well. And they're doing this very successfully. But I'm slightly surprised in the sense of Global. I think there's so much that they're doing is, is very admirable and, and, and shows real ambition. I'm not sure whether this really does show that. Having said that, I think in the past couple of years, there's very little that Richard Park's got wrong. And so, uh, you know, you'd be a brave man to bet against him. Well, yeah, it's going to be t- well, it's been tough for him because Johnny Vaughan had uh, record listeners, I think at 1.1 million listeners in the last Rager. So he's got a lot to live up to. Do you think the, uh, the fact he'll be co-hosting with Lisa Snowden, does that take the pressure off a bit? Will she provide the kind of showbiz sparkle and he'll just uh, you know, fill in between? Uh, I, ch- I don't get it with Lisa Snowden. I mean, I, I get that they get the listeners, but she has like, zero personality as far as I'm concerned. Dave Berry, I find him personally irritating, but I know that uh, younger women really enjoyed his work 10 years ago. I don't know if that's still relevant now and if that's who Capital's (laughs) looking for. To me, it does show a bit of poverty of ambition. I think if they're going for a sparky telly name, they should have gone for someone like Simon Amstel, I would go for. Or even Sam and Mark, uh, which is a bit of a joke of a double act in terms of you say their name and you think again of about 10 years ago, but they're doing stuff on BRMB, I believe. And they're really popular when they do the hub on this morning. You can see Twitter spiking with uh, all of the these young ladies who like their work. Uh, so I'd have gone for someone like that. I think Dave Berry just feels a bit um, naughties and a bit boring. Uh, and, you know, as someone who's trying to get into radio because I love radio, it's also very depressing, although I completely take on board what Steve said about commercial radio needing big names for ratings. It is kind of depressing to look back across the last 10 years and virtually every major signing has been someone who's had their own TV show. And actually, when you think about who are your favourite, favourite radio broadcasters, people like Chris Mills and Scott Mills, None of them started on telly. Uh, I mean, Richard Bacon's good, Lauren Laverne's good. That's about it, as far as I'm concerned, of people who have gone from telly to radio who are actually excellent on the radio. And Dave Berry's not even got his own podcast. Thank you very much to Ollie Mann and Steve Ackerman for dropping by. If you want to give us your feedback on anything you've heard today, head to our blog, that's guardian.co.uk slash media talk, or drop in on our Facebook group. Our producer this week was Ian Chambers, and I'm John Plunkett. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio. The Guardian has partnered with audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a one-month, no-commitment trial of the Audible service. Audible has over 50,000 audiobook titles available to download. Go to guardian.co.uk audible for further details.